This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by me. Hi, I'm Tim, the creator and facilitator of the New Evangelicals and host of the New Evangelicals podcast. Original, I know. We are a Jesus-centered and inclusive community that holds space for the folks marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and we help people like you leave that cold, dark, and damp basement of evangelical fundamentalism behind to explore the rooms of the Christian tradition together. You can check out our podcast to hear from all kinds of amazing guests who are way smarter than me, and even a few episodes where I get to rant to our podcast producer about how dangerous Christian nationalism is. Ah, good times. Check us out anywhere you get your podcasts or slide into our DMs on Instagram at The New Evangelicals. Thanks. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Nat Turney, and with me as always is my brother, John. Notice I did not say my much less good-looking older brother, John. Say, yo, 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 what up, what up, what up, John? Yo, 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 what up, what up, what up, John? I love that there was a pause because you forgot to unmute yourself. That's amazing. He's uh, sipping on a on a whiskey sour made with hot honey. So if at some point during the podcast, he goes, <laughs> realize it's the heat and the honey catching up with him. That's right. So I have a new goal, John. What's up? My new goal for the next however long this 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 episode takes is to see if I can get you to squirt some of that out of your nose and really see <laughs> like like you like you lose your shit. <laughs> that will hurt. That will hurt a lot. So I mean, the let's, alcohol, let's a little bit of the burn. Little, what kind of whiskey's in your whiskey sour? Uh, that would be the Maker's Mark Cast Strength. Not the 46, just just the straight Maker's Mark. The Cast Strength. Okay. That's a good, that's a good one though. I do like that. I'm a I'm a big I'm a big uh, Maker's Mark fan. Especially the uh, the cast strengths and the and the uh, the other iterations, the regular old cast. If I'm at a place and the best whiskey they've got is is Maker's Mark, I'll have that for sure. Yeah, but I'm always looking for something cool. So I'm a little angry at myself because I didn't pick up the Maker's Mark 46 cast strength when I was in LA. I should have got that. Yeah, that was a mistake. But I got the benchmark single. I got the benchmark single barrel, which is very good. I'm not going to lie; it's really really good. I'm not going to tell everybody where to get it. Because we want to keep that one secret for a little bit longer. A little bit longer. When it gets I mean, out, I'm not going to be able to buy it for 23 bucks anymore. Yeah, it's already it's already going up where I live. But that's okay. Benchmark, the whole range is pretty good. I like the full proof and the single barrel. That's yes. probably the bottom yeah. and bond is, is really good. Don't have that one yet. Walk away from the Benchmark 8. That's like like Jack Daniels old number 7. It's just mm, oh, okay. it's not good. Anyway. Good to know. Hey, you know, we have, a, we have a really cool guest with us today. Did you know that? Do we? Yeah, yeah. This guy is amazing, dude. Is he? I met him. I met him uh, a little bit ago, and he's a really nice guy. Are you sure? Humble, self-deprecating. He's a good dude, man. But he's written a cool new book, and we want to promote it. I heard. He's, I heard he's kind of a blowhard. Can you not be a nice guy and also be a blowhard? I mean, well, I guess you can. David Bentley Hart's a bit of a blowhard, but I like him. I mean, he's probably a nice guy. So. True. But this guy. True. This guy has a debut book out. Um, it's kind of currently tearing up the charts on Amazon. I heard it's award-winning. It is award-winning, but the award uh, was given by himself, to oh, himself. Okay. So oh, okay. it doesn't make it less important. But anyway, it's hitting the, the top of the charts on some very obscure categories you know, on Amazon. So that's pretty cool. His name, by the way, is, uh, is, is, is Nat Turney. And the book is called The Seeds of Deconstruction. I just introduced myself. Wow. You introduced yourself. I did. 
How does that make you feel? Like like a big shot, man. So I, I <laughs> so the origins of this whole idea, John and I were talking about was I was I was watching a John Mayer concert. Um, say what you will about John Mayer, I'm sure there are many many opinions. I'm a fan. I have some, but he's also a bit of a douche. So we can admit that. But he kind of uh, is. He, yes. did a, he did a concert several years ago where, and it was really really awesome what he did. He 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 it was the whole concert was him, but it was an hour of him playing like a bunch of acoustic stuff. And then he went away, came back, played an hour with a full band and like all his pop hits and then went away and came back and played for an hour, however long he played with the blues trio. And so it was three complete iterations and different things. But the funniest thing he did was when he, when he came out on his acoustic set, he's like, yeah, yeah, man, I just, uh, I just ran into the headliner backstage. Nice guy. Nice guy. Gave me a little, gave me a little FaceTime. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're, you're going to like him a lot, but let's get off. So of course he was talking about himself. So anyway, I just thought that would be funny. There are at least three people listening who are like, man, that was funny. And everyone else is like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, funny. Get on, get on, get on with stuff, man. So, but anyway, we thought it'd be fun. I've been trying to find podcasts to go on to talk about the book and promote it. And I'm like, well, Jesus, I, I, I actually have a podcast. So I guess we could talk about it on our show. I'd like to hold up your book and say, hey, here's your copy of the book that I have. But my version, mine is, is stuck in customs in Las Vegas. What does that even mean? Yeah, Keith Giles, Matt Stefano, what's up, man? Where are you having these books made? I know. It's like some weird like little uh, place in China where children are, are binding these books. I don't know. I mean, should we be concerned? Are they shackled to little printing presses and, I know. and having to crank these out? I don't know, man. But Do you remember the old mimeograph machines where they're like cranking? Are oh, they doing that? roll them? And they yeah. came out all wonky and like sometimes purple. Remember how they had like, that weird both, smell? But you, but you kind of like the smell. Which weird is we're both doing this. I know. Because it's, it's what we remember. But they had that weird mimeograph smell of chemicals. Yeah, you'd have to like go to the... You know, I remember we did this in elementary school and we're like, oh man, who wants to go run off some mimeographs? And we'd like, oh me. So we'd have to go to the office, you know, like the principal's office in that area. And they'd have the mimeograph machine, literally manually roll these things out. They get all smudged and come out like kind of bluish purple. Remember, it was weird. But anyway, that's that's what we did. Maybe that's how they're having these these books printed. Uh, John's is stuck in customs. Maybe he'll get it eventually. I don't know. Your wife seemed to be a little upset about it. She was like, man... What the hell's going on? I ordered this book and it's stuck in customs. I'm like, well, these are well, you. Uh, you you made sure she understood that if we bought the special edition, there's a brick of heroin in it. So I, I'm kind of looking forward to that. It's not a brick. I mean, it's oh, a, not a brick. Oh man, it's like, a, it's like a little like a little baggy, but it's it's potent. I mean, you won't need okay, much. Better, Just sprinkle some of that better in, be. in your whiskey tower, and uh, maybe next time it won't get stuck in customs. But you know, it is what it is. Well, let's talk about the book. Yeah, that's okay. So, uh, what you want to know, man? I have read the book. You, of course, you have read the book. Um, <laughs> I I read it uh, no, a while ago. You know how this goes. Yeah. You're writing a book. You're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to read this anymore. Oh, I know. I, I'm at that point. I have a, I, this. This will date this episode. I have a meeting with our publisher tomorrow to talk about some edits he wants me to do the book. And quite frankly, I'm like, I'm done reading my book. I don't want to. I don't want to read my book anymore. I've read it and read it and reread it. I'm kind of done. It's like you want to just like hire a hire a ghostwriter to go in there and just just whatever you think needs to happen to make this publishable and marketable. Just 
I'll, I'll sign off on whatever, dude. Just don't make me read it again. It was cool because uh, I've been working on this project for, I guess, two years, really. Um, yeah. It was right around the time that we opened the coffee shop that I had I had signed a contract with Meg Calvin. That was great. I mean, having her on the podcast was... I never even thought there was such a thing. I, didn't, I was unaware that there was such a thing as a writing coach. And I'm like, that's what I need. Because uh, I suck at setting goals and accomplishing <laughs> them. And, you know, immediately we finished that podcast and I, and I emailed her. I'm like, okay, talk about this, this writing coach thing. How's that work? She's like, well, okay. And she kind of walked me through the process. We signed a, a contract and you engage my services and, you know, I'll get you from, you know, from zero to ready to publish book in six months. Wow. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's cool. That's phenomenal. That's, that's a, that, that's a lot. But in the middle of that, we opened up a coffee shop. And I got really busy. I mean, it was way busier than I thought I was going to. I was working 12, 14 hours a day, which, and, and I was keeping up, you know, the, the nice thing about having someone like Meg is that I know every Monday at this time, we're going to meet and we're going to get on a Zoom call and I'm going to have to have given her something to read or she's going to give me hell. So what I remember about that was, so you and I, at this point, you weren't, you hadn't gone back to work yet because COVID, um, COVID was not letting you work. Right. right. Or, or I think you had decided not to work, I think. I don't know if COVID was the issue. I wasn't, I wasn't going back. I, yeah, I'd gotten laid off when COVID started. I got laid off. And then honestly, for the, you know, for however many months, we were just, I was just laid off and kind of enjoying some time. And then we had the bright idea to open the coffee shop. I'm like, I'm not going to go back to the oil business is up and down and it's feast or famine. And so I thought, you know, what would be more stable? Let's open a business. Anyway. <laughs> Well, what I remember of that was, so you and I would either have one or two episodes that we'd re- be recording for the, ep- for the, for the podcast. And I always remember you're like, uh, but I got to go now because I have, I have my, uh, my time with Meg. So we always were butted up against that. You're like, I have a hard out. I have a hard out at whatever time. I don't remember what time it was, but Meg was. And th- I think you agree with this. She, Meg was not only a writing coach, she was your therapist, she was your your editor and to, to an extent, right? I mean, you later yeah, you had an, yeah. a, an editor, but for the most part, what she I think she brought for you was stability and a strong idea of where the book should go. So she yeah, wasn't going to yeah. allow you to kind of pussyfoot around and say, okay, this is, I only wrote this much today, but I was supposed to write this much today. She was like, okay, you can do better. Write more, be better. She would have and did on occasion be like, I know, um, yeah, you only could have done more. But like you said, I, I had come to her with a, with a pretty well-structured idea for a book. And a lot of her initial meetings with people are people who have, have they're like, okay, I have an idea for this book. And they want help with, well, I need to outline this. I need to, I need to structure this. And, and I had come to her with a pretty well planned out thing. And she was like, okay, well, wow, we're already like three or four steps ahead. This is great. Let's go with this. Where she was really, really helpful was, like you said, it was almost like the, the it, it was almost more of a therapist role of helping. Cause anybody who's tried to write, John knows this. I know every, I think anyone has dealt with this. There's, there's, there's a lot of insecurity that goes into that. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of that imposter syndrome that kind of kicks up and goes, you know, what, like, what the hell are you doing? Who do you think you are to write a book that you know that that sort of presents yourself as an expert into something? And she, but she would also call me out on leaning too much on other people's voices and not using my own. Does that make sense? Like, like she's like, okay, I've got this whole chapter and you have referenced 
eight or 10 or 12 other people, what do you have to say about this? I'm like, well, I mean, why would I say it when Brad Jersak's already said it? I'll just say what he said. She's like, nobody wants, I mean, don't, like, don't get me wrong. They want to hear what Brad has to say, but they'll, they'll buy his books. What does Nat Turney have to say about this? And so she, she pushed me and I, and I found that because I was somewhat insecure about some of this, I found myself leaning on people that I respected or whose opinion I thought had more weight or authority. And I think I leaned on them too much. So she talked me out of some of that. I'm like, hey, you don't need to do this. I did lose my shit for a minute when both Brad Jersek and Brian Zond decided to write books about deconstruction. And I'm like, well, <laughs> there won't be anything left to say. You know, and I, I had a mini meltdown with her. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? He's that they will have said everything. And, 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 and to your defense, it, it, it is kind of hard to follow those two guys, right? If Brian Zond and, and Brad Jerzak want to, want to write books about deconstruction, it's like, well, then yeah, literally what is left to say? And what I would say, and I'm sure Meg said was, but they're not your story. Right. It's like you're channeling your inner Meg. It's <laughs> like, yeah, but they're not you and you're not them. Um, you have a different voice and you have a different, you know. And my book is very different than Brad's. And my book is very different than Brian's. I was somewhat relieved that when Brian's came out, I find myself, and I love Brian's on, so take this next bit with a grain of salt. I didn't love his book. I felt like he was a little too critical and a little too defensive on some things. And that might just be the fact that he's still a pastor and he still has a church and he still has people that he feels you know, responsible for. Uh, and, but the thing is, Brad, Brad's book, Out of the Embers, is the book I would have written if I had about 20 more years of education like he does. You know what I mean? Because he just, it's a really good book. Out of the Embers is really good. Well, that brings up a good point, though. I think that brings up a really good point about where you were when you wrote this book. You were, you were in the, for lack of a better description, you were in the end times of your church. You didn't know that, right? When no, you wrote I didn't this. Know. You no. thought, you thought that you were, beginning this chapter. And so as you write this book and as your church kind of falters and you decide to step away, do you see where there might be like an appendix or, or is there a second book out of this? Ooh, that's a good question. No, so good question. Excellent question. John, you're getting really good at this. <laughs> I almost made like, I almost wrote like an epilogue. You know, like I was going to call it like a, like a, like a necessary epitaph or something like that. Just to say, okay, my circumstances since the time I started this book until the time it was published have changed. I was at the time that the book started in earnest until the time I finished it, I was still pastoring a small church. I was dedicated to pushing against some of the stuff from the inside of the institution. We didn't close the church because like it failed, although by every objective measure, it kind of did. By the standards we set for ourselves, it was very successful. But if you're in the church business, you'd looked at my church and went, man, I can't believe you hung on for three years. That's amazing. But we, we really shut it down because everybody involved was getting burned out. And because of some issues that had gone on with my business, namely the fact that they're destroying the street in front of my business for the better part of a year now, and we had taken some pretty heavy financial hits, I had to go back to work. And so I'm back at work, out of town five days a week, and... You know, I'm just never, I wasn't home enough anyway. And all of a sudden on the, on the, you know, the short amount of time that I am home, I'm, I, I see my wife in passing. I see my grandkids every once in a while. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. Like I'm, someone's getting the short end of the stick here. It is, it's not going to be my family. Now the, the, what I didn't know at the time was that Todd, my associate pastor, 
Uh, I knew he'd taken a new job. I didn't realize how much more that had put on him. And so he's traveling more. He's out of town more. He's feeling the stress of it too. And when I finally worked up the courage to go talk to him, because he was the one of the handful of people I was concerned about, <laughs> I brought him to the coffee shop. I'm like, dude, I just, and I just laid it out. He's like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> I've been trying to figure out for three months how to tell you I can't do this anymore. I'm like, oh, well, then it looks like our timing is good then. So, so yeah, the circumstances have changed. And there, so that answers part one. I didn't write an epilogue or, or in the end, it just, it just, some of it was logistics. I'd already submitted everything and it was like, <laughs> I'd already, I'd already reached out to Matt and, and talked about maybe doing something different with the cover. And he's like, dude, it's done. Like, <laughs> like this, 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 this is not how this works. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I had an idea and I just thought I'd kick myself if I didn't at least ask. And so and it was pretty much, if you want to pay to change it, go for it. I'm like, no, no, we're good, man. We're, I, I do love the cover. I just had an idea that I was like, ooh, this, wouldn't this be cool? You know, I was just being that, 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 that pain in the ass you know, artist slash writer, but, um, well, and, and, and real quick, we'll say that. So when you, when you're working in this environment, I think it, it pays to say what you think when you think it and don't wait. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and again, I don't, I'm looking at the book right now and I, and I like it. I love it. It's great. There's just, it, it was an idea. But if you have it, if you have any misgivings, you should say it like ASAP. Yeah. The worst, right. The worst case scenario is they say no. No. Uh, no, nah, we're good. This is the one we're doing. I go, okay. No, and again, I, I don't want to... <laughs> Matt, if you're listening, you were right. It's fine. I love it. I really do. I, just, I had a weird idea. I was gonna, it was really going to be very similar to what, what it ended up being. I just had some tweaks. I was like, ooh, what if we did this? Right. And it would have complicated stuff. But anyway, so that was cool. But the, um, I should mention also that Brad Jersak did write the foreword for this book, which was amazing. Brad, I, I, I did send it to him... Um, and Brian Zond and Paul Young, and they all wrote endorsements for it. Uh, or, and, and in the case of Brad, wrote the forward. And I, I, I did worry a little bit that for Brian and for for Brad in particular, my actually for Paul too, somewhat, that it might be a little edgier than than something they. It was certainly edgier than something they might have written. But they were all very very supportive, and it was cool. So I am working on a second book, and it'll it'll have more to do with with the structure of church and what do we do with that whole concept. Um, so coming out of, and I can, I can play on my own experience of having planted a church and, and not, you know, and no longer doing that, something along the lines of, of getting outside of the institutional church and saying, okay, what, what has that done? Cause you know, I, I started thinking about, you know, most things that you think about that you say are institutionalized, they're never good. Right. Right. I mean, what is institutionalized food? It's food sent to prisons and hospitals and stuff. Is it good? No, it's not. Um, it's, it's, Mass, mass produced for mass consumption, it's not good. You know, when people come out of prison and they can't function in society, we say what? They've been institutionalized. You know, they've been, oh, or, or somebody gets sent to a mental hospital, they get institutionalized. And so this whole concept of an institution is a dehumanizing thing. It takes people outside of their humanity and treats them as one like homogenous blob of stuff. And so I think we've done that with church to a large extent. We've taken something that should be beautiful and wonderful and transformative and we've turned it into something institutional that is bland and boring and manipulative and harmful, ultimately. So anyway, that, that's, that's kind of what's next on the horizon. But I don't, I'm, I don't know. I have to get my head around it. But anyway, where were we? Big shout out to Meg Calvin because she's bomb. But. Well, and, and 
you know, as you're talking about endorsements, right? So you got uh, Paul Young to endorse your book, and uh, I'm not. We're not here to promote my book, and but I will say that you know one of the people I would like to endorse my book is Paul Young. But there's literally uh, a sentence in my book where God says that there is this author who wrote this line that says, all roads might not meet. What was it? What does he say in the shack? All roads It's the conversation where Max says, right. Max says to God, so you're saying all roads lead to you and God. And he says, upstairs. all roads don't necessarily lead to me, but I'm on every road. Right. Yeah. Essentially, it's like she said. Actually, she says most. She's, Papa says, uh, actually, most roads lead nowhere, but I will travel any road to find you. Right. And I, in my book, say that kind of gets it right, but actually, all roads do lead to me. Right. I want Paul Young's endorsement, but at the same time, what happens when he reads that line? Because he's going to know I'm talking about his know. book. So it's it's a weird dichotomy, right? I think I think knowing Paul the little bit that we do. I don't know that that would, I don't know that that would prohibit him or preclude him from doing that. But again, I, I, I had a similar thought because, you know, I'm like, well, you know, this, the Seeds of Deconstruction is a book that is critical. Paul, Paul has a way of being critical and it not sounding critical. Like I, in my view, the shack he, is, he and Brad, he and Brad, right, have a really good way of doing this. Yeah. Of making you feel like they're not being critical, but if you really like dig deep into what they're talking about, they're being pretty critical. I mean, what is the shack if not an open critique of evangelical Christianity? Because Mac represents this, this stream of thought within one segment of the church that has to be overcome with an actual encounter with God. And so God has to set him straight. Oh, no, no, you're doing the Jesus thing. of Like, you've heard it said this, but it's actually this. And so there, it is a critique, but it's, it's a, more, a, little more, um, a little more oblique, you know, it kind of comes around to it. Mine is not that. Mine is a, hey, here are the problems. You know, and so I tried very hard and, and, and we talked, Meg and I, a bunch about this. Like, I don't want it just to be, you know, 11 chapters of me blasting the church about things they've done wrong. So I, I tried to couch it, you know, like the first half of the book is really identifying some issues that I think are, that are that some of the things that are problematic, certainly within the theology that I was raised and, and the places that I ministered. So we talk about issues of like biblical inerrancy and hell and LGBTQ issues and all that stuff, right? Talk about that. And, and and it's all told with stories of my own, you know, anecdotes from like when you and I were kids and um, stuff that we did as, you know. And then and then the other part of the, the other half of the book, I won't say it, it, it doesn't offer solutions because I think that's a fool's errand because that, that begins to sound pretty formulaic. You know what I mean? Like, okay, now you've deconstructed, you know, and I was really, really impacted by what Bio Okomalafe said when we had him on the podcast because he talked about reconstruction and he and he kind of shook his head like, no, 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 no. Like, let's not be too quick to build this again because the problem is we'll just build the same thing. We don't know any better. We'll just go back. And, and it might look different on the outside, but, it, you know, on, on one level, but at its core, it's going to be the same thing because we don't know to build anything different. So he said something to the effect of just like walk away from it, let the ground sit fallow for a time and let the next generation come and build something better. But so I didn't want to offer any like, oh, here's my 10, you know, my 10 steps to reconstruction after you deconstructed. Rather, I wanted to portray this as an ongoing process. Well, and I think you and I have talked about this, right? I mean, we, we've said a couple of things. One was the first time we hear of the 
the first church of deconstruction, we know we've, we've, we've really messed up. And any, any book that really says here, Hey, I'm going to show you how to deconstruct so you can get to the point where you can reconstruct again is, is a level of bullshit you don't need because Nat and I have, we're, we're perfect examples of deconstruction can happen in very different ways. I started my deconstruction back in 1989 because I stepped away from the church because of some, some stuff that happened to me at a very young age. Nat stayed with the church for a long time after that. And so can we say that we've kind of come to a divergence where we kind of meet? I would say we probably do. Are we a hundred percent on the same page? No. And that's what's, that's what's really cool about this. But to say that one person's idea of how we could deconstruct is the exact same way as everybody else is, no, is, it's, is, is a mistake at minimum, right? Yeah. And it's, it's everything that I would push back against. You know what I mean? As far as being either prescriptive or formulaic, you don't even have to call it deconstruction. For God's sake, how many people have we had that on the podcast who are like, I don't even like that word. I call well, it. I mean, something even more. Brad doesn't like that word, right? I mean, no, I think it, he, it, he, he, he said kinda, it in the foreword. <laughs> he said, "Did you read the foreword?" He kind of <laughs> leans toward like, a, and I actually do like this in a sense because I've actually used this back when I was preaching. This idea of reconstructing art—that's not the right language, but finding a piece of art, restoration, restoration, restoration. So I did a whole sermon on uh, a piece of art that. At the time, no one knew that Leonardo da Vinci had, had done this piece of art. So when it first sold, it sold for like $8,000 because no one knew what it was. At, at best, it was something that maybe one of his students did. But it had been so messed up that they, they weren't really sure what it was. Long story short or long story long, they cleaned it up and find out it's actually a da Vinci. It's a true da Vinci. And now this, this piece of art that everyone has thought was worthless is, is now worth millions, millions. And what had changed about it? Nothing. Nothing had changed about it other than it had been cleaned up and there was clarity. And I, and I kind of, I kind of connect that to deconstruction, right? Where we are all on this path. And we think we know where we're going, but till we get to that point of our own clarity, it's, it's a fool's errand. We don't understand our, our own worth. Right. And then, so some people have used that language. Some people have used, um, so like detox. So like, mm-hmm. like you need to detoxify from bad doctrine and bad religion. Okay. I can buy that too. For some people, it's, uh, they refer to it as, as an evolution, which I like because evolution is ongoing. And so there's, you don't get to an end, but I do like the, I, I do like the idea of like an art restoration, you know, because a lot of times, you know, and I've read stories about this before that master painters would reuse canvases. And so they would paint a work over it. And then at some point, someone looks at it with an x-ray or some, and they go, oh my gosh, there's something underneath this that's actually more valuable than what's been papered over this. Uh, hell, the Nazis did this when they stole art. Um, in World War II, they, a lot of times they painted over masterworks knowing that later on they could probably go back and reclaim those and they could hide them in plain sight. So is there something to that where there's this, there's this gospel that I think transcends Christianity? I don't think it has, it's not exclusively Christianity's thing. So there is this truth, this, these kernels of truth, um, that have been papered over, glossed over, you know, corrupted, whatever you want to say by human institutions. 
over generations and generations and 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 so maybe maybe deconstruction is a process of stripping all that shit away and saying okay what's what's actually true here my only issue with that is uh, when you use when you use the idea of restoration project even restoration projects have an end they and I'm not yeah. sure I'm not sure that deconstruction ever and when I started this de- when I finally realized that I that's what I was in because you know there was no term for this when I started this right but when I realized that what I've been doing for the last 20 plus years is what's called deconstruction my concern is there is I have come to the point where I don't believe I no longer believe there's an end nah I don't think so either. and that's okay because getting to getting to the end of something is the problem right the moment you find an end you're you're in another ism uh, so you're, you're you've connected to whatever you, you, you connect to whatever is the safe moment at that time. And I think when, you, when you're really talking about deconstruction or restoration project or dismantling or whatever you want to call it, the idea is that you're okay with being within that, that realm of doubt. And that's another big part of your book is like, like letting go of certainty and, and holding on to this idea of doubt. Which I and obviously it's in the, it's in the it's in the sub subtitle of your book, but I think it's really important. Uh, once I realized that I didn't have to have an answer to everything, that my answer could be literally I don't know, but I'm willing to dig deeper with you. That was like a freeing moment. Whereas in the church, specifically the Western Evangelical Church, they didn't have space for that. Again, going back to go back to the way that you know the churches we were raised in, and the kinds of churches we were raised in that were usually pretty authoritarian in a lot of ways. Uh, doubt was doubt was always the enemy of faith. It's not, I mean, it, but that was the way it was always presented to us. Is you know, and we did this. Look at look at even the way that we have like like taken characters in the Bible and, and given them um, like poor Thomas. I mean, who is Thomas? He's doubting Thomas. Right, doubting Thomas didn't do. Come on, man, read the story of poor Thomas. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. He had to hear about it later. They got to so the rest of them got to see Jesus. He like shows up inside of a locked room and goes, "I'm Jesus," and they go, "Whoa!" And then later on, they tell Thomas about it, and he's like, "Well, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it too." Basically, and they're like, "Oh, doubting Thomas, son of a bitch!" You know, it's like, come on, man. It, it, doubt is that integral part. You know, I it it's. It's the it's that freedom to ask questions. It's the freedom to not know all the answers. It's the freedom to find out maybe you weren't even asking the right questions in the first place. And ultimately, it's the freedom to fuck up and be wrong and not be devastated by the fact that you made a mistake. It, it, we're so concerned. Keith Giles does a really good job talking about this, where you know, essentially, if the if the ultimate goal of 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 your religious faith is being right, then uncertainty or or doubt is that's that those are the high those are the, the like the ultimate heresies or blasphemies because in that theology or in that set of doctrinal beliefs the whole point is to get it all right yeah talk about fool's error but even Jesus gets it wrong right and that's where I think what you're talking about is like super important so we have this moment where Jesus calls out the woman right and talks about that she's no she's no better than a dog and she gets the scraps of a dog right. And she calls well, back and says, "Yeah, but even well, she, she says, she says, even yeah, the, even the, the dogs get that. your scraps, right?" So, yeah, yeah, I would put 
doubting Thomas, and I'm using this in heavy quotes, doubting Thomas in the same place as her. It's like, yes, this is what you say, but I think you need to give me more. And it's not that he doubts the divinity of Jesus. He doubts that this person in front of him is who he says he is. And I think what he's done is asked for what we, any of us would ask. Just give me validity. Just give me proof. Yeah. I mean, in the case of the, in the case of the woman, to me, she calls him out because he actually basically insults her ethnicity because she is, she is not a Jewish, you know, she's not one of the elect, you know, she's one of these other people. And so, and she pushes back on that and says, yeah, but even the dogs get scraps from the master's table. And he's like, oh, okay, okay. You know, so to me, it's an interesting, it's an interesting sort of paradox, you know, where we've elevated Jesus to this place where Jesus didn't have things to learn, didn't have things to, as though that were sinful, right? So we, because we have this picture of Jesus as being sinless and we've equated doubt with sin or we've equated being wrong with sin even, is it possible that Jesus was ever wrong? I don't, he was a human child. I'm sure he messed up plenty. Did that make him sinful? So yeah, to me, it's a whole paradigm shift of how do we view um, getting things wrong? How do we view not knowing all the answers? What's the point of all this if we're not continually searching for the next thing and never getting to a place where we're satisfied? We talk about you talk about remodeling. You have a house. Are you ever done working on that thing? No. I mean, in fact, I was just looking at the deck, realizing all the stuff I have to do. I live in a hundred year old house, man. I promise you, it's never going to be finished. Um, by the time I get one part of it done, another part will be messed up. So if we think of it as a, as a constant sort of, now we don't want to be like the, what's the name of the, like the Winchester house in, in San Jose. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, I get that. The woman went insane and just kept building it and building it and building it and building it. And all of a sudden there's this sort of testament or this, you know, to madness. (laughs) Okay. It's not that, but yeah, there's no, I don't, to me, there's no end game. And that's what makes it even better because obviously what's, think about all the things that you enjoy doing when you come to the end of those things, it's like, okay, well, there's that, that there's like, woohoo, I finished. And then there's like, okay, now what? Thankfully, when it comes to these issues, um, there's no shortage of, of there's no there's no end of things we can we can continue to to deconstruct and take apart and examine. So there's no end in sight, man. So on that, I'm not I'm not asking what your sequel will be will be because I know you're looking at writing other books. But as as you're writing this book, right, you're 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 in the in, you're in the throes of deciding to close or not close a church, and it's not because it's not because of what you're writing. It's because um, you need to you need to do what's best for you and your family, and I think a lot of times church decides for you that. Uh, and we just had a conversation with uh, an author who would I think would back us up on this. That sometimes they the specifically the evangelical church says faith outweighs the betterment of my family, and as we well, if you're in ministry, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, as we're deconstructing or whatever you want to call it, have come to a realization that sometimes what's better for my family does not align with what the church thinks is good, is, is the overall good for quote unquote God. And so as you, as you are stepping away from what everyone would say was your quote unquote calling for the betterment of your family, for the betterment of your business, for the betterment of your grandchildren, how, how that's got to, at, at some point, even in your heart, 
and your soul say that you've in some way failed, right? And how do you, how do you reconcile that? A couple different things. First of all, I've completely redefined or I'm redefining what success looks like. And we had this long talk with the people involved. I actually went to, and here's, here's the upside. The church was so small by the time we closed it. I could have a one-on-one conversation with everybody. <laughs> and I did. I'm like, it took the better part of an hour to go pretty much go speak to each of them one, one-on-one and say, hey, this is what we're doing. Uh, I just wanted you to know. And every single one of them, to a, to a one, was like, I get it. I get it. You need, to, you need to do what's best for your family. So what I thought was cool and what I've, I've said once or twice before, and Kim and I had a long talk about this, is by any sort of objective standard, the church failed. What's really cool is that part of the reason that it failed in those, by, by those metrics is because we, we liberated people from the need to be attached to that thing all the time. There was permission given to come or not come. There was no guilt trip laid if you didn't come. There was no guilt trip laid if you if you uh, you could not financially support. I tried to do, I tried to arrange a thing where we didn't need any money. You know, the church operated on a zero budget for a long time um, because we had a free place to meet and nobody got paid, and we didn't pass a plate. Every once in a while, someone would stuff twenty bucks in the box, and we go, "Okay, we'll use that for supplies next week." You know, <laughs> I had a guy that came to church for a while. He's a kid I've known for a long time. I taught him in high school and he landed at our church for a little while. And his mom, who I know real well too, um, got onto him about joining a cult. <laughs> and I'm like, if you joined a cult, dude, you have just joined the least successful cult in history. Um, nobody here is brainwashed, <laughs> damn it. No one's emptying their wallets and signing to me all their worldly possessions. I have failed as a cult leader. But I, I, was, I was actually heartened by the fact that like, this wasn't going to be devastating to people when this thing closed. They weren't going to, they weren't going to sit around wringing their hands going, okay, well now what do we do? Now we're, now we're just lost. Cause none of them were dependent on me for any of that. Um, and I never wanted to be set up that way where, where people needed me or needed that, that gathering to, to find fulfillment or purpose. So that, that was cool for those who, who, who opposed us or, you know, when I left maybe to plant my own church and who were like, grumbled a little bit, were upset with us. They probably went, ha, see it flop. Good. Okay. Um, you can be salty if you want to. I'm not. I sleep in on Sundays now and uh, <laughs> go out of town if I want to. And um, I find connection with people in all kinds of other places besides. The other part of that that was interesting to me, John, was this. And I, I keep going back to conversations that Kim and I keep, we keep talking about this a bunch. But if the only reason we were friends was because once a week we ended up in the same place, and we maybe participated in the same sort of, and, and once that excuse of hanging out together is no longer there and we're not friends anymore, then that, then that friendship was based on something that was fabricated anyway. So, and that, that to me is an issue that, that church has still yet to address. They create this, this, they, they use this coded language of we all need connection. We all need this and this and this. But the second any one of those people detaches from that organization, um, relationships generally fall by the wayside. Because outside of that common place of connection, um, y'all don't have that much in common anyway. Right. And I was going to comment on that because, so I'm going to come out to Texas in October. So I've made connections with a few people who I believe went to your church. And we're still connected. And I'm ecstatic to meet these people. Uh, yeah, it's I am great. like over the moon to meet Kelly. Oh, you'll love Kelly. She's so great. And it has nothing to do with that she still goes to your church or not. 
It has to do with that we've made a connection that is so beyond this idea of church that we're friends and we've never met. And so that's what I'm excited about. You know, in two months from now, I'm going to get to meet these people who have only met online. And I am like over the moon going to get to meet these people, see them face to face, hug them and say, you know, how, how important they are to me, even though we've never met. And that is way more important than these pseudo, these pseudo relationships that I ever had within a church, right? Where I said, hi, how are you? They said, I'm fine. And I said, I'm fine. And we went on to our daily whatever. And that was the extent of our relationship. I have a stronger and closer relationship with Kelly than I have ever had with anybody that I have sat next to in a church. Other than, you know, like close family, right? And that's sad. Yeah, it is sad. And it, it's, it's, it is one of the things we talk about the next project. That's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm currently really like processing. Okay. What does this look like? Like, what have we done? What have we done inside of the church to, to create this? Don't get me wrong. The need for connection is real. I don't think people do well in isolation. I don't think they do well without some, you know, good solid relationships. I just don't think those have to happen you know, at a specific place during a specific time and doing a specific activity. And I'll tell you that although I'm friendly with people I used to go to church with, I don't have relationships with most of them. It makes me wonder if there was just more of a relationship of proximity or if it was more, uh, hey, like we're on the same team. So rah, 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 we're all going to hang out together. You know, I have better connections with people, like you said, that exist outside of those spheres because those don't have to be manufactured or, or, or fabricated somehow. So... For me, that's where deconstruction takes its next evolutionary step. It's like, okay, and I, and I wrote about this. I think I, I end up with, I end up in the, I end up the final chapter, um, resisting the earth to write a chapter on reconstruction. So the, uh, initially the outline read, I get chapter 11 or whatever it was, and it was going to be, you know, reconstruct. And I'm like, yeah, no, I would rather leave it. I would rather leave it, this part of it open. To say, okay, now that we've done this process, you know, in fact, what I what I even call the last chapter is like conclusions, and and rather rather than going on to some kind of reconstruction, try to consider some places where we could land, and then use those as a jumping off point for what's next, rather than try to contrive something where now we're in the reconstruction phase. Let's build this, build this, build this, build this, and end up with something that just mirrors what we left, using different language maybe, or you know, calling it something different, but ultimately having the same structure with the same pitfalls and the same problems that are associated. So that's the deal. I don't know. I, again, I'm, I'm not sure what that will look like exactly. I've, I've, I've sat down three or four times to start writing and I'm like, eh, I don't know. And maybe scrap that and start again, but we'll get, we'll get something down. We'll get, I'll get something down on paper at some point, lightning strike, but. Well, and, and I understand that from the sense that, and I'm not going to call anybody about anybody out by name, but they all know who they are, right? So as you decide to step away from church, this, the church establishment as it is, uh, there is this, this, this idea that, uh, certain people are going to disconnect from you. And I didn't understand what that meant until I, and it was a really weird moment. I was like scrolling through Instagram and it says, people, you know, who you might like to follow or something like that. And the next three people that it, it showed me, for people that I have followed. And we've been friends on Instagram for a while. And they unfollowed you. That, that they unfollowed me because I had the audacity to speak out against their religion, their wow. faith, 
their, their version of Christianity. And so they quietly, right? Disconnected from me. They didn't, they didn't like overtly tell me I'm a heathen or I'm a heretic. They just unfollowed me. And it was, it was a weird moment where from that I went and started looking for all the people that I was connected to through quote unquote church. And the majority of them had unfollowed me. And I feel like that's, it's a disservice by the church because the church is supposed to save souls, right? So they already have, they've already failed in their mission. And I think they've gone so far as to like, if I can't save you, I don't want anything to do with you. And that's a weird place to be. And that's a weird place. So, I mean, my question, I guess, to you on that would be, have you felt any, and I know the book has just come out, but you, you've also been pretty vocal on online. Have you felt any of that? Have you felt any of the disconnect from former church family members? No. And, and, but, but the reason is because they've already disconnected. They disconnected three years ago when I, I left and decided to go open my own church. Um, and they said the right things and they did the right things, but, but they disconnected then. The only worry I had, and I, and I even, I think I even did a big Facebook post about this was I do, I do talk openly about my story and people who know me, uh, people who've done church with me, people, uh, they're going to see themselves in some of these stories. Because I, and obviously I didn't name anybody that would be, I didn't need to do that. But, you know, there's, there's an opening scene with me having a conversation with my pastor at the time. He knows who he is. If he reads, if he reads the book, he's going to go, well, son of a gun. He's writing that about me. And again, I, I, I don't think that I was hypercritical of any one person. In fact, I think I went out of my way to say, listen, this is a guy that I love and who I still consider a friend, but we just, we don't see things the same way. I was probably way more critical of uh, the church board who, you know, kind of went out of their way to blackball me somewhat because I was, and this is before I ever wrote this book. It was was just because of me, you know, being the malcontent and the contrarian that I am. And we've talked about some of the struggles I had there for the last couple of years. I was there not being allowed to preach and some other stuff. So I was more vocal about about that. Um, I write about at least one other pastor, two other pastors that if they ever read the book, they'll go, damn, that's me. Uh, I don't, I don't actually care if they're offended. They deserve to be offended. <laughs> they were rude and mean and, uh, um, they harmed me and my family, um, a bunch. So they can go get bent. The other guy alive, I still like, I love, I mean, he's a good dude, but it, you know, that that's, I, I was harder on public figures because they're the ones with the big platforms who I think do the most harm. And, and if, if I can call out, you know, what's his face, way of the master asshole, I will because he, you know, anyway. So I, I'm I'm fine with calling out public figures in particular. I don't want to obviously just drop diamond name people and name churches and stuff that I've had disagreements with. But no, I those th- those disconnections that happened a long time ago anyway. And that, and again, that's that's just part of life. I mean, there's people I used to be friends with and, that had nothing to do with church. We we don't know each other anymore, and we're. Um, the difference is I could probably call one of those guys up tomorrow and they'd be like, what's up? You know, how's it going? There would not be any awkwardness. It would just be, man, we haven't talked in a long time. What's going on? Versus, oh, oh, it's that guy. <laughs> so, anyway, it, it is what it is. Um, it's part of that evolutionary process. And so you just, you just got to kind of move on and write the next heretical thing and piss off the next group of people. It'll be great. So if, as we're getting close to the end of talking about your book, if there's one thing that everyone or most people would take away from your book, what, what would it be? Would it be 
that it's it's okay to be uh, someone who asks questions? Would it be that it's okay to be the heretic in the room, or uh, what? I mean, I think we, I think all of these are good. These are good places to be. I think uh, that you can make a strong evidence or, or, or argument that you want to be the heretic in the room. You want to be the voice of, of dissension. But if you had to pinpoint it to one thing that you hope people get from your book, what would it be? You know, I, I think ultimately, I hope they get permission. And not that they need, my, they, don't, they don't need my permission, obviously. But, you know, I hope they find in this place that, that, a, that a place of doubt and genuine curiosity and question is not just allowable, it's preferable. Like this should be the invitation of the church. You know, it's like we talked about with the person we just interviewed, um, Sarah. It's precisely because most of the religion that, that we grew up with or the religion that most of us grew up with is so, was so rigid and it was so certain and it was so doctrinally demand. Like this is how it is. A, bop, 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 A, B, C, this is how. And, and that when we came up against information that contradicted that, it was not just problematic, it was catastrophic. Because we'd been set up to, to buy off on all these things wholesale, one little crack in the dam you know, was enough to start letting things just crumble. It could not stand up to the scrutiny. Rather than say, hey, we know that the Bible talks about creation. We know that science really sort of demonstrates that, that this process is probably more likely. Uh, rather than say, hey, can we find a place where these things might meet up and, and work together? Or maybe, God forbid, view the Bible as, as less than factually perfectly true and more allegorical. We either have to twist ourselves up in the knots to try and believe something that is demonstrably false, or we have to deny the science even exists at all. Or we have to say, you know, the other side of that is that, well, then all of, all of this other stuff is just garbage and we throw it all out. And I think that's how you create atheists is you go, well, we have demanded you believe all of this because it's an all or nothing proposition. It's either all true or none of it's true. And if you're intellectually honest, um, you say, well, then I guess all of it's crap because I, I don't, I, I, I can't believe this. You know, you might find a handful of things you just go, I just can't, I can't believe this anymore. So I'd like to see a generation of people raised to be a little bit more intellectually curious and, and, and not just allowed to ask questions, but invited to ask questions and wrestle with the text and disagree with it, God forbid, you know, or take parts of it and go, eh, I'm not so sure about that part. Well, we've had this, we've had this conversation with a couple different of our, of our guests, right? Where we're talking about intellectual honesty, right? Where we're not, we're not saying that, we're not saying that everything that the Bible says isn't true. Because I, I don't have the, I don't have the biblical scholarship to say that. I just don't. But I can look at it and say, well, this seems a little off to the point where I think it's, I think it's more of a like you, you, you know, either an analogy, a story, uh, something to give us an idea of what's going on at the time. And if you're not willing to. Use your intellectual honesty and say, well, there are points in the Bible where the, it consistently contradicts itself. And so the answer is either one, so something's going on here that we need to dig deeper into, or two, just trust the Bible and just throw all of your intellect out the window. And that's, I think that's where we, that's where we end up with these people who are like, well, we're, we are a young earth creation. Uh, the earth is only about 6,000 years old because if you take everything, it's like, it's like Michael Scott 
in the office where he's following his GPS, right? And the GPS tells him to go straight. And everything around him says he shouldn't go straight because he's going to drop into a lake or a river. I don't remember what it was. But he says, he says, but the, but the GPS says, I need to go this way. So he does. And then he creates a whole argument as to why this is stupid and I end up in the water. That's, I think, what biblical literalism, yeah, literalism, that's where it falls short, right? Because it's the same idea. You're like, you can look at the Bible and say, yeah, but that couldn't have happened the way it says, right? Yeah. And there, and there, you know, you don't even have to get into the miraculous stuff, right? Cause I know that most, a lot of academics will start there and say, well, okay, let's just, you know, if you take, for example, John, John Crossan and maybe the Jesus seminar, um, when they wrote the five gospels, you know, they, they immediately started by saying, well, we're just going to discount all of this miracle stuff. It's all unsubstantiated. So just, just, just forget about that. Um, they were focused in on how many of the sayings of Jesus are actually credible as being, you know, and that, and that was their work. But look at the Old Testament and you can, you, it, 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 it's not that difficult to see that certain things didn't happen the, the way that the Bible describes. Um, there's virtually no evidence for a Canaanite massacre. There is zero geological evidence for a worldwide flood. Um, there's some for a, for a fairly localized flood which to, to Noah and his people, if they existed, would have been like, oh my God, the world's flooding. If you Literally, if you get into a boat and all you can see is water for miles and miles and miles, it's, the world has flooded, right? Creation story, whatever. So even C.S. Lewis, and that's, I, I actually start the book off by, by, by telling about how I got in trouble at my church because I quoted C.S. Lewis. And he, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the quote where he says it's, you know, Jesus alone is, is Jesus, Jesus, not the Bible is the true word of God. And that's, that's hard enough for people to swallow, even though it's flat out spelled out in the Bible. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was not pages in a book, right? It was Jesus. But then he talks about, you know, later on in that same quote, about, you know, when it comes to deciding whether the things in the Bible were true, like factually true or, 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 or mythology. And then he sort of like parenthetically says, you know, except by this, I mean like a mythology chosen by God to carry a specific truth. You know, and then he finishes his quote. And that was the part that got me in trouble was like, well, whenever you talk about the Bible and you use the word mythology, that, that, that's, that's a problem. I'm like, okay, except Jesus told stories. Um, unless you think, you know, unless you're convinced there was really, you know, a good Samaritan or a prodigal son or, um, so can we not use stories to convey truth to tell, you know, and he's like, well, yeah, 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 of course we can do that. But, you know, well, just, and that's just, consistent throughout, throughout the faith, right? That, uh, it provided it backs up your version of what Christianity is, then it's factual. If it doesn't, then it's, then it's allegory. Well, and think, think about this for a second. Like the story of the Exodus is interesting, right? You know, there's an interesting story about, you know, God appearing to Moses and Moses and goes and, you know, but there's a school of thought. There's some scholarship on this that, that, that talks about, um, like that story parallels some stories that had come out of ancient Babylon, where supposedly the Jews had been taken off and, and carried off into captivity at one point. And so one school of thought is that, that they took the stories that, that they had been surrounded with for however long they were in exile in Babylon, and they took those stories and, and, and incorporated them and told them in their own way. So in that case, you'd call that like polemic. 
where you say, well, I'm going to take the story that's familiar, but I'm going to twist it and show you that actually our God is the true God. All your, all your gods were the false gods. The same thing can be said of the, of the flood myth. The same thing can be said of creation stories. Does it have to be that God, you know, spoke everything into existence and, or Adam and Eve were really, because it begs all these weird questions. You and I asked these questions as kids in, as kids in Sunday school and got in trouble for like, okay, well then who did Adam and Eve's kids have sex with to have kids? Ooh. Well, and then they have this really weird, they have this really weird answer, which you don't get in Sunday school, you get later, that up until a certain point, and I heard this actually as an adult, and I was like, okay, I, whatever, I, there's, there's nothing biblical to back this up, but up to a certain point, an ancestral relationship was not only okay, it was required. And then once, once well, you yeah. reach uh, critical mass, it's no longer okay. And there's a biblical answer to, uh, an answer to as to when it's no longer okay to have sex with a relationship of your own. And so, but it's like, I don't see that in Adam and Eve. I don't see that in Genesis at all. You're, you're telling me there's this like this underlying rule that at some point this is no longer okay. There's nothing in the Bible that gives us a delineation with oh, up to this point, Incest is okay. And after this point, it's no longer okay. But we, we live in this world where that is the answer. And it's again, it's, it's. Yeah, but how, how far down, how far down the family tree do you have to go? I mean, if there, if there literally, if there literally was this one branch of the family tree, then we're all committing incest all the time. Well, and it's the same thing with, uh, it's the same thing with, uh, age of consent, right? There's nothing in the Bible that says there's an age of consent that when you when you reach no, a certain age no. you are you are, you no longer can proclaim yourself innocent and if you die you go straight to heaven but we we didn't want to send babies to hell so we created this right so somebody came up with yeah and and no one knows what that age of accountability and is what is here's, it? Here's, what that, is here's what here's here's the, the the really it's horrific but at the same time so true. If you know there's an age of consent, so say, okay, let's, for this sake of argument, say it's 13. Once you reach the age of 12, you should be murdered. You should be killed. That's Rob, Rob, right. Rob Bell, Rob Bell. Yeah. Rob Bell makes this, this, he makes this case in, uh, uh, I think he said it, what is it, in, in Love Wins. He, he talks about this, this, this fabricated age of accountability. Um, whereby we excuse ourselves, right? We, we're no one sending little kids to hell, you know, unless you're like the extremist of extreme Calvinists, in which case they're like, "Yep, you were born sin, you died." Yeah, you know, they don't allow you to baptize baptize babies. It's a weird <laughs> thing, but anyway. So Rob Bell makes the case like, if that's the case, then the the like the most merciful thing you could do would be to murder your children. Actually, abortion would be right. um, like the most kind thing, would be the most Christian thing imaginable because you'd guarantee all those kids would go straight to God. That's, but that's where you get, if you, if you get the crazy, you get to the crazy place and you get that, that, that chick, Susan, whatever her name was, Susan Smith or anyway, who, who literally, who drove her kids into the, you know, drowned her kids in their car because she was terrified they were going to die and go to hell. So she wanted to get to them before they got too old. Well, it, it begs the same question that, that, that Paul Young brings, right? Was like, if I don't go on mission trips and I don't tell these people in these far off countries about Jesus, when they die, they get to go to heaven. But since I gave them the information about Jesus, when they die and they have not accepted Jesus, they're going to hell. It's like, why the hell would I ever go anywhere? Just let them die ignorant. Why'd you tell me? 
just messed everything all up. So yeah, it's a, <laughs> it, all of it is all of it is super problematic. It's all weird. I, I find myself on the side of guys like Marcus Borg and Rob Bell and others who would say, "Listen, I take I take the Bible seriously enough to not take it literally." I think that's the I think it's a very infantile way of looking at the Bible. Um, it's you infantilize the word. And as we've talked about before, the stories are much more interesting with the subtext. Right. So if we're sitting around talking about was Jonah swallowed by a fish or a whale, we're already bored. I don't give a yeah. shit. I'm I, bored. I don't care. Or is this a story about forgiveness and accepting people who don't look and sound like you and your and your God, the version of your God is saying, forgive them anyway. And you're like, but I don't want to. So you're basically throwing a tantrum, right? And at the end of it, he's like, I don't care if you throw a tantrum or not, we're going to forgive them too. And someone like Jonah can't handle that, right? So we can sit around all day saying, was he, was he in the belly of a whale? Was he in the belly of a fish? Did, did that even really happen? I don't care. I really don't care. This is a, this is a story about opening yourself up to forgiveness for people who are not like you, which is, consistently the story, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a much better story. It's a much more compelling story. What is what is Jonah's reason for hating the Ninevites? How deep does that go? How far back does it go? What is, uh, I, I, listen, I keep bringing up Rob Bell, but Rob's, Rob's a good dude. I remember listening to, he was still pastoring at uh, Mars Hill, not the Mars Hill that Mark Driscoll screwed up. But anyway, the Mars Hill that Rob Bell's church was called Mars Hill in Michigan. And uh, he did a whole series on Jonah. And he's like, you know what's really interesting about the story of Jonah is like, uh, uh, Jonah is a prophet. Boo, boo. Sorry, that's a shout out to VeggieTales. And he goes, and, and, and when he, when he finally relents and goes to Nineveh to, to, to deliver his prophetic message, he delivers like a five word prophecy. It is like basically repent or die. I'm out. <laughs> Prophets don't do that. There's, there's books filled of prophetic declaration and how God is upset with you and you've done this and you've done that and they go then they go on and they go on and they go on and they go on and they go on. Why? Well, because Jonah didn't really want them to repent. He delivered the least compelling, the least convincing prophecy in the entire Bible. And to his chagrin, they all went, oh, you're right. We should totally do that. And they all repented. He's like, son of a bitch. <laughs> like I was, I was going to crawl up on this hill and watch you all get smoked and it was going to be great. And so those, those stories that surround his, you know, his bias and his, his, his bigotry towards these people. Um, and again, if you dig into some of the history, some of it was well-deserved. They had, you know, the, the peoples that we're talking about, the Ninevites, and had, they had done horrible things to each other. So there was bad blood had been for a long time. Um, that's a, man, you could talk about that for a long time. Yeah. If you boil it down, like some of my friends tried to do when I made a, you know, I made a post about this at one point, they're like, uh, if, if you simplify it, you end up with a story that's not about Jonah's inability to be forgiving or merciful or want the best for people. You end up with a story about Jonah's being willing to obey or not obey and how God will punish you if you don't obey. And so now Jonah's, you know, hijacked and swallowed by a whale and puked up on land because he tried to, he tried to disobey God. That's a, okay, I guess it's a good story if you want to, if you want to frighten people into, into obedience and acquiescence, but it's not much of a compelling story. The rest of the other side of that is way more interesting to me. And it speaks more to the human condition of how do we actually love our enemies and forgive them and, and, and how do we get past offense and hurt and get around to treating people that we don't like as human beings. So much, much more interesting, but 
and isn't at the core of all this, isn't that what deconstruction has taught us is that we have been sold a bill of goods that says it's more important to other people. It's more important to put the, my little group of people above everybody else. And as you deconstruct and you realize that what God says is that everybody is the image of God. And if that is true, then you have to look at the other and you have to say, okay, do I see God in them? And if you're not willing yeah, exactly. to do that, then you're no better than the Pharisees. You're no better than the people that Jesus was already calling out. Yeah, or you're no better than the people that you claim that you don't like. And so it's easy, right? It's easy to call out. And I'm not going to say I don't still do this. It's easy to call out the uh, Greg Locks, right? It's easy to call out the Mark Driscolls. It's, and like you said, if you're going to be, if you're going to have that platform and you're going to spew that type of hate, I'm going to call you out every day. But at the same time, are you willing to step into the trenches of the people who are in your community and say, yeah, I get it. This is what you've been taught but there's a better way. And I'll be here when you're ready to hear it. And not call them out, not tell them they're pieces of shit. Just be there on the sidelines for when, and inevitably it'll, it will happen. Their, their, will, their world will shatter. And their faith does not give them an answer for that, right? Because everything in their faith says, well, you, your world shattered because you have no faith. And you're over to the side saying, no, there's another way. And let me, let, let's, let's walk this path together. And I think that's, that's what I get from your book is like, yeah, we can call out these, these, these mega pastors all day long. And I, and I'll continue to do that. And I think you will continue to do that. But when it comes down to the people who live within your community, that's a different, that's different. So. I'm not going to call them out by name. No, they're, th- these people have, it, it's kind of like politicians. I mean, when you put yourself in the public square, you invite, you invite yourself to be critiqued. That's fine. Um, and most of those guys, they, Jesus, you think Joel Osteen cares if I call him out? He, he's unaware of my existence. Greg Locke wouldn't give a damn. Mark Driscoll can, anyway, I, I have a long list of people that I'm like, ooh. You know, but the, the sad thing is they, they just continue on. A guy like Mark Driscoll can go out and do all kinds of crazy stuff cause a megachurch to implode because of his, you know, his, his bad behavior. And then, you know, a couple, two, three years pass, and he's got another big church in Arizona and people are just willing to, to, to go again. So um, sadly, they, they're tapping into something that, that, that humans need, or at least the, you know, perverting something that they need. We'll, uh, we'll keep pushing against it, man. It, we'll, we'll do what we can. I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you having me on, John. It's been it's been really good. <laughs> I would say I've, I've I've been an excellent guest. You have been an excellent guest. Do you do you have any do you have any parting words for yourself, or do you have any parting words to the author of this great book? Um, to the author of this book, I, what I the only thing I didn't do, John, I really wanted to. I was, was going to ask myself a couple questions, um, but I saw forgot. So hey, uh, when you sat down to write this book, uh, did you ever think that you would <laughs> be famous and rich? I'm like, yes. Totally. No, um, <laughs> it, it has been very cool. Um, well, I'm, obviously, I, I want everyone to, to buy a copy or five or six and give them to your friends and um, maybe sneak them into places that wouldn't invite them. That'd be great. So yeah, other, I mean, other than that, keep supporting the podcast. We appreciate that very, very much. It's been a, it's been a couple of years of a lot of fun and we've yeah, no end in sight on, on that. We have lots planned. Um, we've got other projects in the works, John and I both. So keep a lookout for that. 
if you haven't joined, the, we should maybe occasionally plug the fact that we do have a private Facebook group that you can join yeah. and yeah. talk about this stuff. There's a couple hundred people in there that are pretty great. Um, and uh, it's a safe place to, to ask questions and talk about stuff like this. So there's a Facebook group out there. So yeah, all that stuff, man. Just uh, well, and yeah. I, I, in, in our last conversation with Sarah, um, I've lost her book. I had it right in front of me. Sarah Stancor. Uh, I, I'm beginning to think this is a really good idea, and I think we should start really pushing this. A lot of churches have free libraries in front of their in front of their church, and I I'm starting to think it's a really good idea to buy these books that really call out specifically Western evangelical fundamentalism, and buy a book and just throw it into their free library, and. You might only reach one person, but that one person who can maybe break away from all this BS is the one that's going to be really, really thankful that they found that book. So let's, let's start, let's start a uh, campaign for, uh, books to be put into the free library, specifically in front of churches that maybe they don't, they're just not expecting. I think, I think it's a good idea. I, th- I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I think so too. We'll call it. Uh, what did I call it on the uh, asymmetric asymmetrical warfare? <laughs> yep, <laughs> the subversive act of giving away books. I'm down. If you want to buy a copy of two of my books and give it away, I support you in that. So, well, it's been great you guys, having man. you on. Thanks for having me on, and, John. Uh, I appreciate it, man. Uh, our other, our, our, yeah, and our other co-host normally has something to say, but he's he's busy right now, so he has nothing to say. <laughs> so I'll just say thank you for coming on. We'll link to all of your uh, all of your information in our show notes. Uh, buy the book. If you're not, if you don't buy the book, you are uh, evil incarnate. Yeah, does that work? Or if you don't buy the book, you're evil incarnate. I don't know. <laughs> One or the other. All right. Peace out, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit Patreon.com/slash This Is Not Church where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.